It is a blessing indeed of high magnitude that we each have today to come together in the great name of the God of heaven, to offer worship unto the very one who is our maker and creator, the very one who indeed has done all things well. As I stand before the audience today and appreciate we have not only many of our membership who have been sick and able to be back with us, but are blessed today with a host of visitors, we certainly want to express our appreciation to each and every one and hope that you'll have opportunity if you're visiting to come back our way very soon. We have been, at least in today, completing a series of lessons that began last Lord's Day morning in which we asked the fundamental question that I now present before your thinking yet again. What must I do to be saved? As we noted on that occasion, it is by far the grandest question relating to the character of our life here. For not only does it share forth the elements of the way in which we live here, but has all the prospect of eternity standing before it. What must I do to be saved? By way of introduction, there are some thoughts to be revisited from the lesson last Lord's Day that will also carry us into the further portions of our study today. I would ask you to note with me some of the things we came to appreciate. We noted that there is salvation not to be found outside of Christ. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Peter's inspired declaration of Acts 4 verse 12. And on that occasion as he stood before those who would in fact have the power by way of their jurisdiction to punish him with death, he proclaimed the fact that salvation is not found outside Christ. In John 14, 6, our Savior himself, but merely a few hours prior to the events of the crucifixion, said the greatness of the following refrain, There's no other way to heaven than through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We understand the Lord's throne is in heaven, Psalm 11, verse 4. And hence, if one is not to find salvation without being before God, and surely he can't, we know that it must be through Jesus. But we extended that thinking somewhat. Not only is salvation found only in Christ, it is found in the church. God dispatched his Son by virtue of love to come to this ground of sin and sorrow. And one of the things our Savior did was to establish the precious body that in fact would find the matter of salvation. Those blessed with the greatness of that entity. Notice some passages very quickly to that point. In Revelation 19 verses 7 through 9, we find near the close of the Bible that John was given a marvelous vision and in that vision he saw none other than the bride of Christ. In our study of the Revelation, we learned who that was. That's the church. A blessing was pronounced upon those, for into the greatness of the everlasting kingdom of heaven shall they be welcomed. But notice, what happened to those who were not members of that body? What happened to those that were not, if you will, the bride of Christ? The other reward, if you wish to call it, that was theirs. That place where the devil and his angels were cast. That place of eternal brimstone, torment, and fire. Oh, how important it is that you and I be members of the body of Christ. In addition, in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, that bride of Christ is recognized as the church. Well, those thoughts is preparatory. It is no wonder then the question should redound from the lips of each and every one of us. How do I become a member of the church? What must I do to be saved? Knowing that my eternity hinges on my character of following that which is found in the Bible. 
Our desire has been to open the pages of the Word of God and let God Himself explain to us the answers to those questions. We should each be eternally grateful that God has not left you and me to try on our own to figure out those answers. For we are not such that we are of the same mind as God. His ways are far higher than ours, Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 11. His thoughts are far above ours. Thankfully, gratefully, wonderfully, majestically, He has given us these answers. Last Lord's Day, we looked at five cases of conversion in the book of Acts. We attempted to very honestly and powerfully let the Scriptures speak for themselves and identify for us what had to be done in order to be saved. We looked at the scene in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost and simply noted what they had to do in order to obtain the salvation of which Peter preached. We also looked in Acts chapter 3 and considered the nature of those events proclaimed on Solomon's porch. Peter again preaching, what did those precious individuals do in order to be saved? Then we looked in Acts the 8th chapter and asked about the Samaritans. As Philip went to preach to them, did he preach the same thing that Peter had? Did they have to do anything different or separate from what Peter had preached? The answer was no. He simply preached, and in Acts 8 verse 12, they too simply responded in obedient faith and became members of the body of Christ. We noticed also the powerful case of the eunuch in Acts 8. We noted in verses 26 to 40 how that this man, though he himself not a Jew, he was an Ethiopian nobleman. Yet when he heard the proclamation of truth from the mouth of Philip, he said, here's water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? He was told to do the same thing as those others that we had considered. Finally, our fifth example drawn from Acts 16 had to do with Lydia and her household. We remember, too, a very great similarity. But with those five, might I suggest to you that there are five more. Let us turn our attention again to the book of Acts, looking at some of these other cases of conversion. And today, let's consider five different ones. And might I suggest that we consider carefully some questions. Were these told the same as the five we learned last Sunday? The speaker will often be different. The circumstances are different. The city is different. But in each instance, were they told the same? With those kinds of thoughts embedded in our heart, let us now turn to our first instance of conversion, the one that we shall consider first on our discussion list today. Found in the 18th chapter of the book of Acts, in the first 17 verses of this powerful and wonderful chapter, we recall that Paul and his companions were in the midst of the second missionary journey. In fact, as that journey was nearing its conclusion, Paul had come to that licentious and wicked city, primarily known as Corinth. While there, we learn that Paul saw a vision from God, God comforting him and encouraging him, and all the while, Paul recognized his life to be in danger because there were some unbelieving Jews in that city, individuals who not only were uninterested in the proclamation of Christianity, they were openly hostile to it. Paul, understanding that fact, was comforted greatly by the nature of God's revelation to him. And we find something rather dramatic about the set of events. There were some who not only responded to what things Paul had proclaimed, but they became Christians. They became those that were saved. And our question shall be again, in what way did they become Christians? What did they do in order to have their sins washed away? 
let us notice according to the next slide. And we'll do the same as we did last Sunday, somewhat moving back and forth between these. If you would look down the opening column, that's a continuation of that previous slide. We notice in Acts 18, verse number 8, as Paul preached to this group in the city of Corinth, it says, And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And thus the verse concludes by saying, Many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. Thus, as we appreciate the statements that followed, those in Corinth came to know the blessed Savior and to know the power of association with Him. What did they do? They heard, for the Holy Spirit declared in verse 18 as much. What did they do following that? It is incredibly powerful to observe that hearing alone was not enough. They also believed. Many of the Corinthians hearing believed. Might we observe in verse number 8 of Acts 18 that that belief is such that that too was not the ending point of this plan of salvation. For notice it says they hearing believed and were baptized. As often as that word and occurs in the scriptures, and it occurs well over 55,000 times, it joins together matters of equal rank. It joins things that themselves are not optional. If one matter is itself a requirement, so too are all those joined by the word and. These Corinthians heard, they believed. Might we notice that at last Lord's Day, we observe that those on Pentecost were told to repent. And repentance was also seen in Acts 3.19. Do we see repentance expressly noted on this occasion? In verse number 8, we do not seem to find it. I would make note, though, that as you and I, being diligent and studious individuals in regard to the Word of God, might we note that all of God's Word must be taken together. And later, the inspired apostle wrote two books to the church in Corinth. In those books, did he refer back to this series of events, and did he, in fact, state anything that would be in accordance to repentance? In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9, 10, and 11, on that occasion, Paul directly made note of what kind of lifestyle the Corinthians had formerly lived in previous days. But isn't it remarkable in that discussion, he also says, many were such of you. Past tense verb is employed. They no longer were. Thus, they must have changed their lifestyle. They must no longer have lived in the way as they had done in the past. They must have repented. In Matthew 21, verses 21 to 28, Jesus identified and defined repentance. It is that change of mind that results in a change in action. We notice that that's what the Corinthians must have done. And that's the reason I place that in parenthesis. We do see repentance on the part of these Corinthians as their lifestyle changed when they understood that the Lord Jesus Christ was in fact the Lord of all, Acts 10.36. Might we notice then back in verse 8 of Acts 18, it says they were baptized. Many of the Corinthians hearing believe and were baptized. At that point, that chapter moves on to give us a grand note of rejoicing on the part of the Corinthians as they appreciated their association with the Son of God. But at this point, we might well favorably compare this listing with those five we discussed last Lord's Day. And notice again there is a blank left beside confession that which we also shall revisit at a later time. What about a second example today? Back to our previous slide. 
as we come to study yet another, this time found in the ninth chapter of Acts. We now are of the disposition to appreciate the grand occasion when a gentleman named Saul came to understand the glory of the nature of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. That scene is one that's rather familiar to us. You might notice that out beside that text, in the second row of that, I placed an asterisk. Because you see, this particular episode is recorded not only in Acts chapter 9, but also in Acts chapter 22 and in Acts chapter 26. All three chapters provide us information about the conversion of the man we know of as Saul. Thus, when we discuss in just a moment what Saul needed to do in order to be saved, we will often note events found in those other two chapters as well. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 26. In looking at the scene of events, we notice that they took place a short distance outside Damascus and on into that city. The two spokesmen were themselves Ananias and the Son of God himself. What was Saul told to do in order to be saved? Let's return to our second slide again and put some more meat to that skeleton of this second one that we've just considered. Starting in the ninth chapter of Acts and looking through the greatness of what's revealed there, we learn interestingly that Saul had in his possession letters that were granted to him by none other than the high priest himself. Those letters gave him permission to imprison and to bind those that in fact were Christians in the city of Damascus. Saul had taken it upon himself to proceed at once to that place and to do, in fact, the bidding of the high priest. However, while in transit, in the journey to Damascus, about the noonday hour, a bright light shone about him. It was not any ordinary sunlight. It was a light sufficiently bright. Paul later would say it was brighter than the sun. With regard to that brightness, there was not only that, a voice. Someone speaking to him in the Hebrew language. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? At once Saul was terrified. At once he heard the character of the very one whom he'd been persecuting so vehemently. The very one whom he had so strongly opposed. In the nature of that, Jesus spoke to this man. In fact, told him to go into the city and it shall be told thee what thou must do. It was not optional. We might already appreciate one interesting lesson. With regard to the plan of salvation, it is not a matter of option. This is what, Saul, you must do. Let's consider other elements of that. Notice that Jesus spoke to this man, and later Ananias did as well once he came to the city. And Saul listened with great attention. He heard something. Notice also... Interestingly noted in all three chapters, the greatness of his belief to what he'd been told. In fact, let's revisit just one of the statements of Acts 9 verse 6. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Jesus had only said to him, Why persecutest thou me? And yet he was overcome with belief that the very one who was speaking to him was the resurrected Son of God. Saul was a brilliant man. He and his living in the environs of Jerusalem and knowing the character of Jesus had been put to death, he even held the clothes of the very ones who stoned Stephen not many days before. All the while, he now understood that he'd been living a lie in the sense that he thought Jesus was a fake, an imposter, when in fact he wasn't. Even though he had lived in all good conscience, he had lived wrongly, improperly, and unjustly. 
so much so that now he believed the truth of the very one speaking to him. Might we notice some other things? In Acts 22.15, it's especially noted about his belief. The nature that as he went forth speaking and proclaiming, he had to be overwhelmingly convinced of the truth of what had been told to him. In Acts 26, verse 20, we have a statement implying his repentance to, in regard to his former ways of life. He made that affirmation none other than to, to Ananias, the very one whom God sent to him. At this point, might we notice Acts 26, verses 18 and 19. In those passages I've listed, Acts 22, 14, Acts 22, 10, Acts 26, 20, Acts 22, 15, we find earmarks, hallmarks, if you will, of all the aspects of this plan of salvation. Finally, might we notice in verse number 16 of Acts 22, Ananias, when he came to him, said, And now, Saul, why tarriest thou arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord? At this point, might we observe that Saul was still in his sin. Even though he had believed, even though he had repented, even though it would appear the firmness of his consideration of what he had heard, he still was in sin. Might we observe that what was it that was to erase and to remit that sin? Be baptized. At that point, in conclusion, we notice that Saul adhered to that. He obeyed that commandment. And remarkably enough, we observe the degree that shortly thereafter he began to preach the very messages that he had been given by Jesus and Ananias. This case of conversion is a powerful one as it challenges us to appreciate the easiness with which God's plan of salvation is provided. In the third place, might we notice also yet another in Acts the 10th chapter, returning again to our previous slide. This time the city of Caesarea. This place, again in the Palestinian area, was such that the particular individuals involved this time was the, Peter was the spokesman, the preacher, if you will. Cornelius and his household were the listeners, the audience. This is recorded in the 10th chapter of the book of Acts. Looking throughout that chapter, we'll notice again that reading is a bit extensive, but let us note some of the highlights of what took place on that remarkable occasion so many centuries ago. Looking again with a great interest to this next slide, we notice that this particular man, namely Cornelius, was a devout man indeed. He gave much alms to the people. He prayed to God always, Acts 10, verses 2 and 3, as well as verse 22. However, in the goodness which, with which he was living, he was still an individual who on this occasion, about the ninth hour of the day, prayed earnestly unto God. And he was given a message, a vision. And in that vision, he was told, You go and send for a man named Simon Peter, who is dwelling with a Simon the Tanner in the city of Joppa. He'll come to you and tell you what you must do. At once, we well recall that that commission was carried out. Simon gathered three of his servants, one of them being a soldier, and sent them to Joppa and ordered them to fetch one man named Simon. In the meanwhile... We remember that Peter himself also had a vision. He fell into a trance, if you will. It was about the dinner time hour, the noonday hour. As he fell into that trance, he saw a sheet let down from heaven, knitted its four corners, and in it were all manner of beasts, clean and unclean. And that happened three times. 
All the while, Peter was perplexed and confused, for he, being a devout Jew, would never eat that which was unclean, according to Leviticus chapters 11 and 12. However, he was told, Call not that uncommon which I have called clean. God, speaking to him, informed him that the Gentiles were now to be accepted. The gospel was for all. We notice immediately, just as soon as the trance ended, those men from Caesarea had come. And the Holy Spirit told Peter, you go with them. You, in fact, proceed at once with them and show forth to them the greatness of what you have been told and revealed. Peter, being a dutiful servant of God, came to that place of Caesarea and he began to observe that Cornelius had gathered not only his family but apparently others to listen to what Peter had to say. On that occasion, Peter made reference to what the vision was he had seen. He said, I have been informed not to call anyone common or unclean that God has called to be those of his servants. At that point, beginning in verses 31 and 32, Peter proclaimed and preached to them. Might we remember verses 34 and 35? Of a truth I perceive, God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. And that group to whom he was speaking were Gentiles. They too were now to be accepted into the fold of God by decree of heaven itself. Might we observe that Peter preached and they heard. Did they believe? Is there any information about that in the texts before us? Might we notice verse 43 of that chapter informing us that there was the necessity of belief as a part of what Peter had proclaimed as we look forward also to what else was accomplished on that occasion. We notice there's no express statement of repentance, but notice with me verse 46, a hint of confession, and also verse number 47 and 48 about their baptism. Again, a remarkable similarity to things that we've already seen in our discussion of these plans of salvation in the various cases of conversion. Noting this time, we were not dealing with a Jew. This was a Gentile, a centurion, if you will, of the Italian band. With those thoughts in mind, let us turn our attention to yet another, the ninth in our listing, this time found in the 16th chapter of Acts. This time the city was in fact not even in the nation of Asia. All the other instances of conversion that we have discussed have been on the continent of Asia. This one is in Europe. The number of differences seems to mount. We are now in Philippi. As we return and consider this ninth one, the second to the last column, notice that in Acts 16, verses 16 through 40, we are in the midst of the second missionary journey. Paul and Silas were the proclaimers of the truth on this occasion. And in this European city of Philippi, might we observe that the audience would be this rather small at first, but growing group of individuals interested in being true and faithful to the God of heaven. What took place on this occasion? Let's return to our second slide and ask, what did these do in order to be saved? The specific person of whom we're interested is the jailer in that city. We might well remember that Paul and Silas had in fact done things that did not bring them great favor of those in the city. Paul had cast out a spirit of divination from a young girl. And her masters were so enraged by what had taken place, they drew Paul and Silas before the city's leaders and in fact brought the city into a tumult with regard to Paul and Silas. In fact, they were beaten and then cast into prison. 
We find, however, a spirit of enlightenment in these two. For about the midnight hour, they were singing praises to God and praying. And at once, we're told, suddenly there was an earthquake. It shook the foundation of the prison. It loosed the bands from off the arms of the prisoners. And it opened the cell doors. The jailer woke up. He was in a sleep. And when he woke up, he was beside himself with terror, thinking the prisoners had escaped. And he drew his sword ready to take his life. However, Paul, being an ever-observant person that he was, he said, Do thyself no harm. We are all here. At that point, the jailer sprang in and brought a light with him. And at that point, he said, Sirs, verse number 30, what must I do to be saved? Here was verbatim the question we've been studying now through these previous eight examples. Sirs, what must I do? in order to be saved. At this point, it's no wonder that that verse is so often referenced, for it is, in fact, the very matter that's before us today. But it is a tragedy of eternal import that the answer is not properly apprehended from the virtue of the Scriptures. For just as surely as that question was asked in the very next verse, we notice the beginning of the answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou and thy house, and thou shalt be saved. Now, there are many who would prefer to stop that chapter at that point and to go no further when, in fact, such is not rightly dividing the word of truth. In fact, are we ever at liberty to just pick parts out of the sermons that we might want and to ignore or refuse all the others? In Jeremiah's day, they weren't allowed to do that. We might remember in Jeremiah 36, there was an occasion when the prophecy of Jeremiah was such that it had been written... And when that writing was brought before the king, the king took his penknife and started cutting out the parts that he was unhappy with. Was God pleased with that? God told that Jeremiah, you write again the very same things that were before and you go and take it again. You see, we cannot set aside the word of God. We are not at liberty to add to it, take from it, or in any way ignore it unless we are ready to accept the eternal penalty for doing so. We notice yet again here, the sermon began, as we notice in verse 31, but it didn't end there. What else was told? Let's revisit the plan of salvation here. We notice that that jailer heard. Before us can well be noted Acts 16, verse number 32. For it says, Paul and Silas preached unto him. He heard something. In verse number 31, at the very outset of the sermon, he'd been told, you'll need to believe. And hence, that too is a necessity. Can we not continue on and notice in verse number 33 that sometime between midnight and the daylight hours of that day, that man washed the stripes of Paul and Silas, indicating the degree of repentance in his heart. He understood that what had been done to them pre on the previous day was not appropriate. They were the servants of God. He washed their stripes, indicating the repentance that he exhibited and failed. Might we notice also in verse number 33, it says again that sometime between midnight and the daylight hours that man was baptized. When did he rejoice? Was it before or after his baptism? It was after. And can we not see the reasoning for that? He wasn't saved prior to the baptism. It was not until after it. Might we observe as that chapter races to its conclusion, we find a man rejoicing in the nucleus of the congregation in Philippi had been set. There was, after all, that jailer. 
There was, after all, a very small grouping consisting of that lady out of whom Paul had cast that spirit of divination. With that greatness, a marvelous and powerful church of the Lord came to be. And the book of Philippians is addressed to that very congregation. Might we notice our tenth and final example. As we look at this one found in the 19th chapter of Acts. This time we're in the city of Ephesus. Again, one of the major cities of Asia Minor. And in this place, in Acts the 19th chapter, we learn that Paul again was the preacher. And those to whom he spoke were twelve men who had been baptized previously. But Paul quickly discerned a problem with their baptism. Let us revisit the scene of events in Acts 19 verses 1 through 7 and ask this time what needed to be done by these twelve in order to obtain the salvation of that day and time. First of all, in verse number 5, it says that upon the preaching of Paul, that when they heard this, they heard something. They became aware of that which was necessary for them to do. And in that hearing, might we notice also, in verses 2 and 4, Paul made direct note that that was a necessity for them to believe that they did. Might we observe also that something else was affirmed. That previous baptism was a baptism under the jurisdiction or administration of the baptism of John the Immerser, John the Baptist. And when Paul came to understand they had not received the gift of the Holy Spirit, he then knew that there was a problem. Notice what Paul proceeded to do. In verses 4, 5, and 6, may we specifically observe verse number 5. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That baptism of John the Immerser was not a baptism under the jurisdiction, if you will, of Jesus. He was not the administrator of it. They needed to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Acts, or Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. When that took place, we again notice that it was then that the Holy Spirit was able to come upon them. It was then they were able to work the miraculous works that were to be done in that day and time. To note all of those ten examples, it would seem that we are in a position to draw some conclusions. We have noticed ten instances, ten cases of conversion. What was it that took place in these? One of the first things to be noted by each of us is that this plan of salvation didn't seem to depend on what city they were in. It didn't seem to depend on who the preacher was. It didn't seem to depend on the ethnic background of those to whom the preaching was made. All ten instances had a remarkable degree of similarity, and all of them had many, many things in common. And in addition to that, let's summarize by noting that they were to hear. That was mentioned in all ten cases. They heard something. Is it any wonder that in Romans 10, verses 10 and following, we find the following words, especially starting in verse 13. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And how shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how, they be how shall they believe unless they hear? And how shall they hear without a preacher? You and I, as we've already noted, do not have the thoughts of God by our own means or our own capability. It must be by his revelation. Thus, we must hear the word of God. And it is by that we can learn what we must do in order to be saved. And thus, the necessity that we hear. Might we note that it does matter what we hear. Jesus proclaimed such in Mark 4.24. Take heed what you hear. 
we know that the words of men do not have within it the salvation of God. We need the words of God, for that is the truth. And as that truth is presented, that's what you and I must hear. Might we notice that Jesus said, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. He did not say falsehood will set us free. Ignorance does not set us free. We must hear and know the truth. But hearing it alone is insufficient. We must believe it. Notice that Jesus said, Except ye believe I am he, ye shall die in your sins, John 8, 24. And didn't our Lord say in Mark 16, after he'd been resurrected, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, who Jesus will be saved? He that believeth and is baptized. We are not at liberty to leave out belief. In fact, we learn in Hebrews eleven six, For without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. But at this point might we carefully observe belief alone is not enough. You and I unfortunately live in a world where far too many think that it is, that the plan of salvation basically stops at this point. But might we know that that wasn't enough on Pentecost, in Samaria, in Ephesus, in Corinth, in Philippi. They all were told to do more than that. In fact, what else was told? they had to repent. There had to be a full acceptance, that is to say a belief, that resulted in a change of action, a change of lifestyle. That's what you and I merely term repentance. Isn't it to be noted that in terms of repentance, that's commanded on many occasions. In Luke 13, verses 3 and 5, Nay, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And on Pentecost, when he, Peter said, Repent and be baptized. Notice the necessity that they had of repentance. But then, might we note, that too was still not the end of all of this. For is it not true that we must consider further these other two? The matter of confession. Returning especially to the scene of Acts 8, we remember that there was a eunuch. He was a convinced that Jesus was the Christ. There was a eunuch ready to become a member of the church, and he said, here's water. Why can't I be baptized? At that point, Philip said, If, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Might we notice there was a condition there, if. And it was then he affirmed the reality of his belief with a verbal and audible confession. That too is reminded of us in Romans 10, verse 10. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You and I must confess. Later in 1 John 4, 15, we're told that Without confession, there is no salvation. And finally, baptism. Given the emphasis that has been laid on baptism in all ten cases, it is amazing how that can even be questioned. In fact, in all ten instances, baptism was specifically mentioned. It was not even left for us to deduce it. And yet today and throughout the centuries, there have been those who have said one need not be baptized. The audacity of anyone to think such we notice in every instance baptism was expressly mentioned. Certainly in appreciation of that, it's no wonder there are many verses that set forth the same teaching. Galatians 3, 26 and 27, the means by which one enters Christ. 1 Peter 3, 21, the thing by which we're saved. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, the matter in which we contact the very death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Baptism is necessary. In fact, Jesus himself said so. We aren't merely relying on some ancient scholar or man. Jesus said, He that believeth and 
is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. As we draw this particular lesson to its conclusion in this brief series as well, it might entirely be fair to notice these concluding points. These cases of conversion have been set forth for us in plainness. They're in the fifth book of the New Testament. We are not in a position to have to guess as to what needs to be done to be saved. The far greater issue at the very moment before us now is this. You and I each have heard the gospel. As we open the pages of the Word of God that's presented in truth, we must believe it, believing that Jesus is exactly who He said He was. We must repent of the sins in our life, for that drove the nails into the hands of our Savior. We also must confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and we must be baptized. Friend, have you attended to that in your life? If you've reached the age of accountability, that you know that Jesus died for you, you know what sin is but haven't attended to that, then at this point you're lost. At this point you are not a member of the body. Do you not want to be such? Do you not want to become such? That can be accomplished today. The plan of salvation and simplicity has been discussed for two Sundays. And as we've looked at these cases, we've been reminded of the greatness and simplicity of what God demands. Today, if you need to become a Christian, the baptismal waters behind me are prepared and ready. The clothing is also warm and also ready. If we could help you become a Christian today by simply doing that which we've studied, we'd love to do it. If you, though, have been a Christian but have not remained true to your first love, you have left that first love. Revelation 2.5 demands you come back to it. Repent. Do the first works. Return in faithfulness. We need to pray on your behalf. And that we can and will do. If either of that's the need of your life, will you not let it be known hastily while together we stand and while we sing?